to the Mind and Matter podcast. I'm your host, Nick Jacomis, and today I'm speaking with Dr. Reggie Gaudino. Reggie has a PhD in molecular genetics, and he's been working for a number of years in the biotech and cannabis industry, broadly speaking. Reggie worked for a number of years at Steep Hill Labs, one of the first and one of the largest cannabis testing laboratories in the legal cannabis industry. And Reggie is an expert in the biochemistry and phytochemistry, as well as the growth properties of commercial cannabis, also known as marijuana. He is currently the vice president of research and development at Front Range Biosciences, where he leads a team of scientists, including agronomists, breeders, and growers that carry out sophisticated breeding programs for hemp and cannabis. Reggie and I talked about a variety of topics related to the biochemistry and phytochemistry of commercial cannabis, including what the history of breeding has looked like in the United States, what the characteristics of this plant are, what its chemistry and biochemistry and its genome actually look like, and how those things interact to determine the final chemical profile that any given plant will express. And we also explored the relationship between the various uh, nomenclatures and labeling system used in the consumer cannabis industry and the actual scientific understanding we have of the underlying chemistry. So for example, people often in the industry refer to indicas and sativas, indica strains being those that are allegedly sedating and sativa strains being those that are allegedly energizing. We talked about whether or not the categorizations as they're used in the industry actually make sense and actually matter map onto the underlying chemistry of what these plants actually look like under the hood, so to speak. So if you're interested in cannabis or phytochemistry, this will be an interesting episode. We dig fairly deep into this topic, so Reggie goes into a fair amount of detail. But if you're interested in this topic, uh, this is definitely a good one. As always, if you enjoy the content on this podcast, please like, share, or subscribe. You can subscribe to my weekly newsletter at mindandmatter.substack.com. You can subscribe and watch video versions of these episodes on YouTube. Today's show is brought to you in part by Dosist, an all-natural cannabis company specializing in dose-controlled cannabis products made with plant-based ingredients. To learn more about Dosist, their products, and where they are available, please visit their website through the link in the episode description. This episode is supported in part by Athletic Greens. Their main product, AG1, is a comprehensive and convenient daily nutrition product containing 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced ingredients with less than one gram of sugar per serving, no nasty chemicals or artificial anything. It's gluten and dairy free and compatible with paleo, vegan, vegetarian, and ketogenic diets. AG1 is a quick and convenient way to supplement your diet to help ensure your body is getting the nutrients it needs. It comes in powder form and you can mix it in water and drink it, or you can put it into a smoothie or a shake or something like that. I mix it into water and drink it with the first meal of each day, and it's super convenient. If you go to athleticgreens.com slash mindandmatter, Athletic Greens will give you a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. Their vitamin D product comes in tincture form, so you just take one drop each day. A large fraction of the population is actually vitamin D deficient, especially in winter months when we get less sun exposure, and vitamin D is super important for the proper function of the immune system and for a variety of other things. And there's even evidence indicating that vitamin D deficiency is correlated with more severe cases of COVID-19 in those who get infected. Every time I go into the doctor each year for a checkup, I'm always told that vitamin D deficiency is very common and I should be supplementing on a daily basis. So visit athleticgreens.com slash mindedmatter or click the link in the episode description. You'll get a free one-year supply of vitamin D with your first purchase. And with that, Here's my conversation with Dr. Reggie Godino. 
Reggie Godino. Thank you for joining me. Hi, Nick. How are you? Thanks for having me. Good. Um, can you give everyone just a short background on who you are and what your scientific training is? Uh, okay. Uh, my name is Reggie Godino. I'm the VP of R&D at Front Range Biosciences. Um, uh, I, have, I previously was uh, president and chief science officer at uh, Steep Hill Laboratories, which uh, uh, was at one time the largest and was, uh, I believe, the first commercial cannabis testing lab in the world, but definitely in the United States. Um, my background is in molecular genetics and biochemistry. Got my PhD at Roswell Park uh, Cancer Institute, which is part of the SUNY system. Did my postdoc at uh, Washington University in St. Louis, uh, where I worked on, uh, went from like uh, bacteria and yeast into plants. That's where I started um, getting my real plant training. I worked on a project that actually involved uh, using ethylene gassing chambers that were supplied by Monsanto. Uh, so I've actually been inside of Monsanto's headquarters at, or at least research facility in Chesterfield for quite some time, good part of my graduate career. Um, uh, then got into intellectual property uh, and, and um, made noise in the beginning of my career in the cannabis industry about intellectual property and the importance of it. Um, and, you know, kind of a my my path to this point <laughs> so 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 you're basically a molecular geneticist in terms of your scientific training yeah. and you've been working in the legal cannabis industry for some time mostly in the lab testing and science science space let's say right so and 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 went from you know developing uh, through the work at Steep Hill an understanding of the basic chemistry in a very deep way uh, in a way I think that other people had not you know gotten to at the point uh, and then from there was able to because of my you know background in molecular genetics and, and biochemistry um, you know and, and genomics right so so. <laughs> So while my background was in molecular genetics and biochemistry, so I'm old enough to have started at the beginning of recombinant DNA, right? So I've done every type of sequencing. Uh, bioinformatics is a term that did not exist when I got my PhD. And, and at the time we did it by writing out sequence on graph paper and like moving pieces of graph paper against each other to do a lens, like literally, right? So, so, so I've done every aspect of molecular biology and genomic the kind of like sequencing study, um, then went uh, because of my my intellectual property uh, training, which was at Sequinome, which helped invent the first um, non-invasive non-invasive uh, pregnancy test through the the you know doing a fetal karyotype through the blood draw of a, from the blood draw of a mother and looking at apoptotic DNA. Uh, it developed, you know, we, when we were there, we developed a lot of IP on sequencing um, and, and karyotyping and, and how to use that information in building, you know, a genome research program, right? So, so when I left there and came back into the, and came into this industry as going back into science from intellectual property, you know, a lot of that of that genomics came along with me and formed the basis of what we did at Steep Hill. Uh, at Steep Hill, we, in, we introduced the first sex test, the first CBD test. Um, you know, it, unfortunately, it was not popularized and sold as well as it should have been. Um, Steep Hill really was at the forefront of a lot of stuff in the industry in terms of R&D. Um, and, then, and then from building those tools, we went in-house and are now breeding. So my entire team mm -hmm. is focused on breeding and actually actualizing some of the stuff we learned, right? You know, 
Um, and a lot of this talk later will be about terpenes and that, and that's, you know, really where the nitty gritty lies. And, and, and we've focused very heavily on the terpenes, um, you know, published in 2019 uh, and plus one, you know, that the first uh, complete, you know, description of, of the terpene synthase family in cannabis and then, um, and then have been going from there. So, uh, and just recently, ironically, uh, something that we left behind at Steve Hill finally published, uh, it was a patent application on um, chemical profiling and using that chemical profile as a prediction tool uh, on, um, you know, on the effects of potential various, you know, chemovars. So, mm-hmm. and then I, and I know you and I talked about that a couple of years ago. So, so we're going to go um, fairly deep into some of this stuff in order to give people who are less familiar a foundation. I want to ask ba- some basic high-level questions uh, about cannabis and just have you kind of uh, set that foundation for us. So, could you maybe give like a concise summary of? what kind of plant cannabis is, where it first evolved, and, and what kind of environments it was native to before it was domesticated? Um, so that's a great question. And and I'm not sure anybody can actually answer that question. It's been around so long and, and it's been domesticated for so long. I, I, the idea of, of land races, I think, is a misnomer, right? Because even the land races as we know them, right, quote unquote, seem to have a high degree of hybridization. And the fact that we did in fact now find, you know, cannabis from almost 2,500, 3,000 years ago, that was high THC varieties, right? So, so the, you know, so even back then there was evidence that there was some separation of cannabis into its, you know, um, separate types, the type ones, the type twos, type threes going back a long time. Right. So, um, so, we do know that some of uh, the basic types are, are you have the Afghani types, the, 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 um, uh, the ones that look more like the Indicas, uh, you know, um, and so they range from the, you know, Pakistan, Afghanistan, Himalayas, that area there, right? Then we have the, the Siberian types, right, which is the Ruderalis, right, which is a completely you know, different looking thing, but is where a large, we were, where lore says we got a large portion of our auto flower from. And then you have the more equatorial types, the, the ones that we typically call the sativa types, right? Um, where you have, you know, they're more, you know, they have evolved for their particular environment, right? So you had the ones that evolved for short day, colder environments, um, you know, uh, short growing periods, you had ones that essentially grew all year round and, and languished and produced flower at, you know, because of a different set of chemicals, they're, they're less photoperiod sensitive, um, you know, or, or actually rather they're, they're, they're not that they're photoperiod insensitive, it's just that there's additional triggers for their flowering program, right? So because they're, they exist in 1212, right? So it can't be light, right? So, um, you know, and and I think when you look at those basic types, traditionally or historically, right, those forms did in fact seem to travel with a function, right? So the long, lanky sativas seem to have their chemical groupings, and those chemical groupings likely came from the environments that they were exposed to, right? So now, 
the question going back to you know the domestication right and what effect that has had on it right so one thing to understand is that built into the the dna of cannabis has is this tremendous plasticity right one way to look at cannabis is it is in fact a early colonizer species. You find cannabis is able to adapt its, its growing mm. regime to more environments than most other plants, right? So, and it's very human-like in that response, right? Like, I mean, mm. like, you know, humans can go almost anywhere, right? We go, we live everywhere except, you know, Antarctica, right? And the Arctic Circle, right? And when we try hard enough, we can even live there, right? And, but, you know, you find cannabis living in, all the same environments that you can find humans living in without extreme adaptations, right? And so because of that plasticity, right, uh, and because it, you know, its seeds were nutritious from the beginning, right? So so early hunter-gatherers, they ate seeds, right? That, you know, they ate, you know, and so we found that we could, in fact, subsist on some of those things. Um, and And the fiber ended up being useful, for clothes and for rope and for other things. And so it became rapidly a human survival toolkit kind of addition, right? So, uh, and that, that occurred, you know, early on. And, and so I don't think you can talk about human of evolution without talking about cannabis as part of that, right? So it is in fact, one of the earliest, if not the first plant to be domesticated. There's evidence that it was domesticated before things like weed or whatever, right? So, mm-hmm. um, so I, you know, I think um, one way to look at why we should care about what cannabis does is because it is in fact so adaptable, right? And that means that it it must have systems in it that allow it to rapidly change. If you look at cannabis and it and it comes from, you know, uh, I think it, so. It's no longer a rosacea. I think hemp and cannabis have been moved. I think it just happened in the last month or two. They moved from. Um, the rosacea family to something else, but I'm, I forget that. And so, um, but it, it was just done reclassified, right? So, but if you look at where it was before, and even its closest relative, hops, right? Those are not, you know, annuals. Those are perennials, right? Th- those are plants that live and 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 thrive and come back year after year after year, right? And so, the question that I've always had about cannabis is: Is it doing what it's doing because we forced it to? Right. Like, is it a plant in transition from being a perennial to an annual because of the way that we forced it? If you look at the equatorial species that grow in Jamaica and other places, right, they flower year round. They just go and they hack off pieces and they leave Mm -hmm. the plant and the plant. Right. So 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 this has always been a a fascinating thing to me. Right. So, you know, what is cannabis and 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 is are we seeing the effect of of a lot of human intervention on its growth program, right? Mm-hmm. Or did it really evolve completely different growing programs because it grew at the equator and then it was also growing up in, you know, on the mountains in, in the Himalayas, right? So mm-hmm. um, fascinating things to talk about. Yeah. So, so cannabis is a very adaptable, yeah. um, malleable plant, which is very interesting. So it can take many physical forms. It's, um, mm-hmm. Its genetics are very interesting. The chemical diversity, which we'll talk about, is very interesting. Sticking on the physical side for now, 
um, especially for people who aren't that familiar. So when we when you buy cannabis flower, when you see a bag of weed, whether it's in the illicit market or you go buy some at at the at the legal dispensary today, people call that the flower or they call it the bud. What part of the plant is that, and and what is um, what is that part of the plant actually doing for it? Uh, so that that is in fact the so cannabis is actually. Uh, the bud is a fruit, right? So it, it's, we call it the inflorescence, but it's typically not because flowers don't make seed, right? Well, a, a specific part of the flower makes seed, right? So, so we're looking at a, at a highly elongated, you know, um, ovary, right? Like, I mean, so it, it, it's, uh, it, it's an, it, yeah, yeah. So um, it, it is in fact, the inflorescence, right? It is the flower, right? But it, but that flower turns into the fruit because that, you know, that's the fruit is where you get your seed, right? So the bud becomes and ends up becoming, I think there it's, there's a term for that. Um, but it's, it's the female reproductive organ. Right. Exactly. Right. right. But, but, um, and so whether it's a flower or it's the, or it's actually the ovary it, it, fruit bearing, you know, part of the plant uh, is a good question, but, you know, it, it is technically, you know, when we, when we think of flower and we look at a rose, right. You know, um, there, that there's a difference. So that rose, you know, produces pollen or it, it will then produce a seed in a very specific part of the bud. Whereas the flower that we smoke is in fact, you know, just there to produce seed. Right. So, um, and we've we've cut that off by growing sensimilia, right? So, um, uh, um, but what's interesting about it is is that 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 flower is a highly specialized organ because if you look at male flower, you don't get you know terpenes and you don't get all the THC produced, and and so there's structural differences between the male and the female parts of this plant you know, um, that are highly important and, and, and play into this whole thing we're about to talk about. So. Interesting. And then maybe the last piece here is, so if you zoom in and look at these buds or these female flowers very closely, there's these small structures called trichomes, which, um, are going to be very important for our discussion. So what exactly are, are those and why are they important? So um, trichomes are an interesting thing. So if you look at the plants that make trichomes, typically trichomes are on the outside of a plant to do one thing, to house things that are bad for the plant, but good for survival, right? So generally you find trichomes on the outside of the plants and there's, there's several forms of trichomes, right? So we look at the glandular trichomes as the important trichomes because that's where all of the chemistry happens for the plant. But there's like three or four other types of trichomes, some of which are actually weapons or weaponized, right? Mm. And so um, a lot of a lot of the, you know, uh, a, a good example of this is creosote, right? So creosote puts the, the toxic chemical, right? On the outside of the plant in its own trichomes, right? And the trichomes are pointy and, and, and sharp. And we, and cannabis has tiny little pointy sharp, you know, trichomes on the underside of the leaves and, and, and the stems as well, right? So, um, and so trichomes generally are a protective, uh, a protective adaptation for a plant. So, so it can help ward off things that would 
either predated like you know chill, you know herbivores or whatever um or fungus that would inhabit it right so or or infect it right so fungus or, or viruses so, so so generally trichomes are in fact an adaptation for the plant to survive right but, but so it can put out toxic uh compounds that won't affect its own growth Interesting. So the trichomes are the structures that contain a lot of the interesting chemistry. A lot of this mm. chemistry is actually bad for the plant, which is why it's on the outside. And it's, right. it's, it's, it's really engaging in chemical warfare, I guess. Yep. Yep. Exactly. Right. And, and that's an important thing to, to understand, right. As we move forward to this conversation, because, you know, we look at terpenes and the, the chemistry of the plant as, as beneficial to us. Right. Mm. And sure it is totally by happenstance. Right. So it was a total mistake. Because, you know, these things are actually produced, not for us, but for the plant to survive. And it's surviving against insects that want to eat it and, um, you know, fungus that wants to, you know, turn it into mush, right? I mean, so, and and these chemicals are there to help its own survival. And and the way it does it through the biochemistry and the systems that that it plays into, right, um, you know, it just so happens that in our evolution, some of these systems ended up being critical functions for higher cognitive thought or whatever, right? So <laughs> it's interesting. So we've already mentioned that cannabis is very plastic. It's very adaptable and there's many different um, forms it can take. So how do you start to think about the different types of cannabis that are out there and what actually <laughs> defines, you know, what's one type versus another? And I guess this could be a, a part of the conversation where, you, where we differentiate between some different terminology that you often hear. So a lot of people talk about different cannabis strains. Um, you also hear people use the term cultivar, and then you also hear other people use the term chemovar. So what do these terms mean? And how do you personally think about what truly differentiates um, distinct varieties of cannabis? Um, so strains is um, scientifically typically used for microorganisms or viruses, right? So um, serotype strains, that kind of thing. So uh, I like the term cultivar. Um, it denotes much the same thing. Um, and, and because these are, you know, these are cultivars. So you're taking gen uh, a genetic population um, and you are going after particular phenotypic characteristics uh, and, or, you know, some of it, which is chemical output. Right. And so, um, so you then select from a genetic population, right. And you, and so these become your, your cultivars, right. So now, um, or varieties, cultivars and varieties are interchangeable, right? So, so um, now the problem with cannabis is, is that a, any given genetic, because of the plasticity, right, can in fact, under different conditions, give you different chemical output, right? So a cultivar could theoretically give you different chemovars, right? Um, uh, because of, again, the plasticity and, and how the plant will respond, right? So, um, and some of that is is inherent, right? Like, so, um, you know, even if you have inbred lines that you understand exactly what terpene synthases are being carried, right? So they don't all fire at every given time, right? Because they are, in fact, environmentally responsive. So the same genetics, you know, even though it looks identical in the field, if you don't lock that growing environment in as well, you may in fact get a different chemical output. Will that chemical output be vastly different? Probably not, but different enough that it could cause, you know, if it's being used for medicine, it could cause a different reaction, right? So, so some of these things are important and it is important to understand the differences, right? So, you know, you have 
cultivars or varieties and cultivars or varieties can in fact give you different chemovars, right? And, and strain can be used, but strain is typically a microorganism term. So I see, I see. So cultivar basically just refers to different types of plants um, defined by their phenotypic features, the way they look um, or their growth patterns or their chemistry and strain is sort of uh it's an informal term that the that the cannabis industry has used, even though right. it's not really the what a scientist would use for a plant. Well, I mean, even in agriculture and plants, right? So, so in 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 you know most agriculture, you know, even they're they're called cultivars or they're called um, you know um, in 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 the ornament in the ornamentals for in particular, right? So, and ironically, because ornamentals are largely clonally propagated, much like cannabis, right? So there is a direct kind of like correspondence between agricultural speak and cannabis speak, right? Like we're mm. doing the same things, right? So clonally propagating specific genetics, right? So because it's a specific genetic, right? It is in fact a cultivar, right? Or, a, you know, it would, and the phenotype, and so that's another important thing that people need to understand, right? So phenotype is, is, is actually a biological equation, right? Phenotype is equal to genetics plus environment, right? So, um, so phenotype can only be 100% the same if the genotype and the environment are 100% the same all the time, right? Mm. As soon as you vary one, this thing changes, right? It's a biological equation. It's just like math, right? So, um, so, you know, and then, and, and that gets into the intellectual property thing, right? Like, you know, people want to have like these broad patent claims on a cultivar, right? But like, you can't because a cultivar could be different chemo profiles and you could step on everybody else's stuff. So in my opinion, if you want a really solid patent or the patent office should require a tie of genetics to cultivation methodology to give you that, to give you your chemo, chemotypic, you know, you know, uh, output, right? So, um, so there's, there's a whole bunch of things that, that cannabis does that steps across so many lines and makes it so complicated. It's, it's really like internally for us, it's been like, yeah, yeah. Cause you know, cannabis, right. So like, that's our, our internal meme in my R and D team, right? Like it's because nothing happens the way you would expect it or, or it should because it's cannabis. So because the plant is so adaptable, you can have um, two different plants with the same genome, but they actually express that genome in different ways, depending on the environment they're being grown in. Right. I mean, it sounded like what you, what you were saying is, you know, if these plants are using all of these chemicals for defensive or protective purposes, you know, there's genetic programs that allow the plant to shift, say, the terpene it's yep. making if, if some type of mold comes and infects it. Is that the basic yeah. idea? Yeah. Yeah. So the plant is full of its own sensors, right? Um, and, and, um, and actually terpenes are part of that response system. So, so a lot of monoterpenes, right. Are actually what are called, um, herbivore induced plant volatiles, right? Mm. So monoterpenes are the ones that, you know, you know, alpha pining, the ones that we, that, you know, are the first to go away when you, when in a poor cure, right. Kind of thing. Right. So, um, and so, you know, a lot of these things are designed to be very, uh, you know, spreadable, right? Like you, you find monoterpenes in the soil because they volatilize and they can travel. It's there for, for either chemical defense or adaptation, right? So some of these terpenes are, are repellents. Some of these things are attractants. So some of them will attract a predator on something that's eating you, right? So kind of thing. So, so it's, it's, it's a chemical 
it, it's kind of it, you're, you were you hit it on the head before. It's chemical warfare, right? And, and it's chemical warfare on very many levels, on signaling your allies, on poisoning the ground for your enemies, mm. um, for you know preparing the way for the soldiers, right? Like so, you know, you get the the roots that are, are evolving some of these. Um, um, uh, monotropics as well, and they have a, a job to adapt the soil, right? So to attract the good stuff that will help us benefit to repel, right? So, um, a, a, you know, a, and it, it's it's very interesting, right? Um, the way, you know, the, the whole entire kind of orchestra moves together, right? Like, you know, it, it's a very well coordinated, you know, both orchestra and ballet, right? So, um, you know. And then it goes a step further because now at the leaf surface and the flower surface, you're also having these things volatilized as well, right? So, so you have a set of a set of things, reactions going on underneath the ground that is based on its in fact influences. You have a separate program going on in a separate organism, or sorry, a second organ, a separate organelle, right, at the top of the plant that's responding to its environment. And and these things are all beautifully, you know, characterized. And when you look at the RNA expression in the flower and then the roots, which is, you know, we've done this and, and published in some of our papers, you can see that there are different non-overlapping terpene groups that are doing their jobs on this at at the same time in the plant, right? Because you when you do these, when you do the RNA expression, right, you you break it up into you know different tissues, roots, stems, leaves, trichomes, whatever. And you you sample the plant on the same day. So at this on the same day when you sample, you've got one program running here and a completely separate program running here. And they're making and coordinating production of different sets of terpenes and not interfering with each other. Right. It's pretty amazing. Mm-hmm. So, so- so I think we, we've covered why the plant makes these things. Can, let's discuss now what exactly are cannabinoids and terpenes? How are they similar? How are they different? So cannabinoids and terpenes all start from the same building block. So they're all isoprene based, right? And they all share um, common precursors, right? So uh, specifically one precursor for terpenes, right? So GPP is the common element and it's made um, in plastids, um, no, I, is it the MVEP pathway or the other? I forget some of those details. Uh, I gotta look. I gotta look at the pictures, right? So, but it, there's a plastic pathway that turns isoprene into GPP, right? GPP is then shuttled out of plastids into, or either kept in the plastid, right, uh, or shuttled out of the plastid into the cytosol, um, and you have different terpene sets and different, um, you know, th- that are then um, expressed based on whether the, the an, an enzyme can find GPP or FPP as its precursor in the reaction, right? GPP is also shared by the cannabinoid system, right? So you make GPP and then it's shunted into trichomes because there are, you know, the trichome is a, is a cell. It's, it's just, it is an extension of a cell group, right? You get a base formed around the, you know, where the trichome's about to elongate. You get, you know, some thickening of the wall. You get some stuff, elongation, and then you get the glandular top. And then at the base of the gland, at the top, you have these secretory cells, which are essentially um, kicking the the precursors into the glandular trichome head, which is where stuff is happening, right? So, okay. Um, 
and there's evidence that it happens along the shaft of the, the of, of the trichome as well and stuff like that, right? So, um, but at the end of the day, right, what we're doing is we're making a pool of this precursor GPP, and depending on on what either compartment or uh, or it's in or or what enzymes it's exposed to, it's going to either make things like beta mercine, right? Um, GPP goes into a number of the terpene pathways, and you know, beta mercine. Uh, is is one of the you know um, GPP you know uh, most monoterpenes come from GPP basically right so um, um, and then uh, that pool is shared right now that's is an important consideration right because because GPP is the common precursor for both terpenes and cannabinoids right this this chase of THC right is in fact limiting the terpene production, right? Because it's a shared pool, right? So you make a bunch of GPP and then it's either turned into cannabinoids or terpenes, right? So by forcing one direction, right? It's a, it, and this is another typical thing that people don't think about in terms of cellular biology, right? It's carbon flux, right? Like literally there's, you have energy coming into the cell, these precursors are made, right? And when you have a pathway that you have to fork one precursor. You can never make a lot of both. I see. One has to suffer. So, um, so I guess I guess the lesson here is cannabinoids, including THC and terpenes, um, all of the things that you can smell when you smell a cannabis flower, they share some common ingredients. Yep. So biochemically, they share some common ingredients. Those things can kind of get shuttled one way or the other biochemically in the plant. And there's going to be some trade-offs in terms of which cannabinoids and terpenes are actually found in any particular plant. Absolutely. Right. And the higher the THC, the lower overall terpenes on top of it, right? So, you know, um, and this gets into, you know, unfortunately, we've been chasing THC so long, right? But but recent studies have shown that 28% THC doesn't get you higher than 22 or 25% THC, right? So, that you know, that it was a single study that came out of CU Boulder, but it's still, right? So there's a study that shows that from the, from the, effect from the experience side, people who were given either whatever the numbers were, one was 28, one was lower, they couldn't functionally, they could not tell any difference. Right. So, so, and then this harkens back to, for those of us of the older generation, right? Like we were, you know, we were getting very high on 12, 14% THC Panama red and Acapulco gold, but at the time, those things, right, those things were known for their bouquet and for, you know, assuming you weren't getting Mexican brickweed, right? So if you were getting good, you know, cannabis that was coming across the border, you know, these things were, were known, f- they had their, you know, they had their mystique about them because they were so far different, right? So, um, you know, and, and these were not testing high, like right? we have data from it. We have DEA data that goes back and shows that these things were not testing at 25%, right? So, so it is possible to get high, very high on lower percent THC and the right terpene combination, right? So, so this has been the big fallacy that's been, you know, unfortunately, you know, um, pushed on uh, on the industry so that you got to have THC. What are, um, so today, modern commercial cannabis in the US today, what are the typical THC content? What, what are the THC percentages that we tend to see today? And um, are there limits to that? That's a great question, right? So so one would think that unless you, you know, um, 
unless you bolster overall biochemistry in the plant, it would be, you know, I, I'm, people, I don't think people are going to get 45, 50% because the plant has to have enough material to do other stuff like grow. Right. So, um, so I, I think realistically getting a lot more cannabinoid out of the plant without a, a, you know, optimizing the genetics, like really going through and doing what we've done in, in ag tech, let's say, you know, we look at corn, right, where corn yield and, and sugar content and those things have been, have been going up, you know, um, there was an explosion of it, right, when we first got into molecular biology and sequencing and all that stuff. And then as we, we, we get further, you know, there's been less of a drastic climb, but there's still every year, there's, you know, a few percent increase in yield or content or whatever, right? So because of the, of the optimization of the genetics and the breeding for, for better varieties and for better combinations, right? So I think we can do a lot of that um, without GMO, right? And get to a point where we do have a plant that is built better from the ground up. And so, you know, there's a lot of basic agricultural genetics that we still have yet to unleash on this plant, right? That we haven't done it. There's no research, you know, just, you know, when we think about corn, right? Like the corn genetics program, right? Like for us to get where we were, it took $300 million and like 50 labs or 40 labs across the United States, right? So mm -hmm. it was it was a huge input to get to where we are, right? So that's not been done in cannabis, right? So, um, you know, and 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 I think once we do some of that stuff, because we have built the tools already in, in corn and wheat and all these other things, we know how to do the sequencing and the, the bioinformatics now. It's not new science. I think, you know, um, you know, a fraction of that investment, like, uh, you know, a hundred million dollars, you know, with the serious academic labs and, you know, and, and industrial labs, you know, working hard on it. I, I think we, we, we turn this plan into something that, you know, we're even, we're surprised about it. So. Hmm. so why is it today that, um, you know, in commercial <laughs> cannabis in the U S and basically everywhere in the world today, you see, so much THC in these plants and you see so little of these other minor cannabinoids. Mm -hmm. What are some of those other minor cannabinoids and why are they so minor? That's a great question. So, and, and this is most likely, um, um, the result of, of intense inbreeding without good science and genetics to understand what we were, we were dealing with. Right. So, and, and so we can see some of that evidence by looking at CBD varieties and the minor cannabinoids that are available there and THC varieties and the minor cannabinoids that are available, you know, in the THC varieties, right? Dominant varieties. So, and this is a paper that came out of, uh, of Canada. I forget uh, whose lab it was. It might've been Jonathan Pages or some, you know, associate of his. Um, but what they showed was, is that when you look at the chemistry of the plant, right? So you see a, a lot more minor cannabinoids of different types in CBD lineages than you do in THC lineages. And that's not surprising, right? Because when you have intense breeding for a specific thing, right? You tend to lose non-important or, or, or things that are, are not under the selective pressure for that particular thing, right? Um, unless they are in fact, right? Linked by, link, you know, a genetic physical, you know, association, right? So if you're breeding for THC, things that are in linked disequilibrium around THC are going to come along with it. But what you'll see is, is that you'll see, you know, 
the alleles that you want for THC will be bottlenecked, but you'll see like CBC genes. There's a lot of var variation in CBC genes, right? So because nobody's breeding for them, right? So there's no selective pressure on them, but for THC, but things that are not only good, you know, things that are further away down the chromosome, instead of, you know, people tout one centimorgan as this kind of magic number, if it's within one centimorgan, you tend to, you know, it's hard to get, you know, I think it, you know, it depends on the size of the genome and, and, and the plant, right? So, um, and chromatin structure, right? But, but at the same time, right, you know, things that are five or 10 centimorgans away, right? Those are easily recombination, you know, so, so you get recombination. So in those situations, you could see where things further away from the thing that you're looking at, THC, the thing you're selecting for, right? And again, this was all done by seat of the pants, right? because we didn't have genetic tests and we weren't doing lab tests, right? So it was basically, did this get me higher than I think I got last year, right? That's mm -hmm. basically, right? And so under those conditions, without a lot of oversight and understanding of the genetics, you're going to lose stuff. And that's, and we've seen it in a lot of organisms. If you look at the difference between teosinte and corn and maize today, huge difference, right? Uh, I mean, let me take that back. So four or it was four genes or so that caused the difference in the shape or whatever, but the basic genomes between the two, right. Are, are really quite different now from the ancestor to what we could call maize now. So basically what you're saying is because people were cultivating and breeding cannabis illicitly for so many years in the dark, literally, yeah. um, they weren't, you know, they weren't doing rigorous scientific testing. They were just sort of paying attention to one output, which is, how psychoactive is this for me this year compared to last year? And that caused selection for just production of THC, 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 and you tended to lose all of the other things that are there. So does that, does that mean in effect that despite, you know, despite the, um, you know, wonderful diversity that you actually see in commercial cannabis today, that's still only the tip of the iceberg. There's actually a lot more diversity that could be there that actually yeah. has been lost in some ways. Yeah, so uh, I'm. I don't want to steal um, one of my one of my uh, uh, scientists' thunder. So we, we're getting ready to public to uh, submit a paper, uh, but we just recently kind of looked at terpene diversity across a number of genomes, right? And and because of of, of front range is, is really well positioned. Um, you know, we have our our European division at the which is a collaboration with Craig Irta, and so I have a whole you know, research uh, arm there. We do a lot of genomics there. And, and so what we've been able to do and, and, and even looking at some other cultivars, right, that have been sequenced in their genomes published in the United States, right? So, through, you know, various publications other than ours, you know, you can see that there's a really big difference in some of the structural components of the chromosomes when you look across different different you know, genetic backgrounds, right? Like to the point where, I mean, it, it, and to me, this is um, really, you know, satisfying because I've been saying for the longest time, I mean, God, I can't remember the first time I, I mentioned it was uh, some seminar I gave, it might've been at MJ Biz, you know, who knows back when, but um, I said, 
when we are able to do haplotypes and haplogrouping like we have done for the Human Genome Project, right, where we can look at what segments of DNA were carried ancestrally because they're in the largest proportion of the population. And then you can see that the segmentation of the genome regionally, you can see haplogroups that are regional haplotypes that are blood, bloodline, right? So, so when we get to the power and, and the coverage of the DNA, right, uh, you know, sequences from, from around the world, we're going to see almost identical things, right, in haplogroups and crossovers because humans took, when they left where they were, they took their hemp and went to other places. And if there was hemp there, that hemp interbred, right? So, so just like when humans went from point A to point B, you know, they may have at some stopped interbreeding amongst their population and started outbreeding as well, right? So this is why, and so, you know, so what we are in the midst of building, right, is this understanding of what parts of the genome carry what bits of information that are now in the, the hybrids we see today? And how does that affect them, right? Not all terpenes came with all plants. Some things from Southeast India or Southeast Asia had a particular group of terpenes because of their environmental needs, right? Some other ones from you know Europe or from South America had theirs. And it wasn't until you saw these populations end up in the same place and interbreed that we got some of the diversity and some of the things that we're seeing. Right. And so that's the beautiful thing about cannabis is that, you know, even with the loss of some things, as long as we continue to go back and outcross to more ancestral, I won't say land race, right. I will say more ancestral populations that are, you know, feral cannabis for all, all intents and purposes. Right. So, um, we're, we're, we will find these things. And the, that is evidenced by the fact that we find a lot of minor cannabinoids and other groups, right? So we're talking about cannabinoids and terpenes here, but we find not only other minor cannabinoids and interesting terpene diversity in things like hemp and grain, uh, sorry, sorry, fiber hemp and, and, and seed hemp, right? Um, you know, but we, we, we also find some of these interesting minors on the CBD side as well, with things that literally, you know, unless you have the ability to have a standard for all 148 cannabinoids, you will not be able to determine what this is. Right? And, and I have population genetics we've been saving that have a number of these things. And, you know, it's time, you know, without NMR and, and, and you know, purification to 100% and NMR, you know, we will never identify what these compounds are other than we know it's an acid cannabinoid because of its structure. Right. So. Yeah. so the same way that we have had such a focus and an overabundance of THC compared to these other minor cannabinoids, I suspect that we've also had um, some particular terpenes reach high prominence in commercial cannabis at the expense of others. What are some of the most abundant terpenes in cannabis today and, and what do we know about them? So uh, you're absolutely right. So beta-mercine and beta-caryophylline end up to be the, the two of the top, right? And, and again, right, largely those two things, um, you know, uh, end up being, I, I think it's, it's some ridiculous. It's, it's like two thirds or three quarters, I think. Yeah, right. Yeah. Just those two, right? So, and, and, and so that's an example of, I'm glad you asked that question, man. So, <laughs> so that, that is an example of exactly the bottlenecking, right? Like, and again, it comes from predominantly, right? Because 
a few varieties and what they carried with them because they were high THC producers. We kept hitting high THC producers together and, you know, um, and that's what I was talking about. So if you look at U.S. varieties versus European varieties, you can see there's there's really significant differences in the bottlenecking that occurred in each region. Right. So um, so now. Right. You know, I think, um, you know, one of the other interesting observations is when you do outcrosses. Right. So the outcrosses are also now kind of. Um, you know, controlled by whether, you know, um, uh, I, I can't talk too much about it, but when, when you look at certain varieties that have uh, chromosome deletions, right? Like, you know, and, and, and so now you have things that are not producing certain cannabinoids because that piece of the chromosome is missing, right? So trying to outcross those things, right, creates all sorts of havoc. Right. So so now you get to a point where we've done some damage in some ultra specific varieties to the point where it causes like an imbalance and you have a very unhappy plants when you put them back together. And the offspring are, are really weird. Hermy grow poorly. Right. So, so you know, um, I think, you know, Wow. I, I think I just went totally lost my train of thought there. <laughs> yeah. No. Well, why, don't, why don't we just bring it back to some of the more common terpenes? So there's a, there's a handful that oh, yeah. are really right. common. Right. Do, what do we know about, you know, if anything, okay. what they actually do physiologically? Okay. So, so yeah, I'm, I'm sorry. Uh, so, so, so the other ones that are in that upper group, you see alpha pinene, um, you see, um, so we talk about myrcene, beta caraflane, alpha pinene, uh, you see limonene, Right. And and um, to a lesser extent, I think you see some stuff like um, beta farnesine and there's one more. There, there, there are six really predominant ones. And then there are a few more that are two of the predominant ones kind of coexisting together. Right. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, alpha pinene and myrcene sometimes or or beta myrcene and limonene, you know, so but but. And then, so those are realistically the majority of the 70%, 75% we were just talking about come from combinations of just those six, right? Like the ones that we just talked about, right? So, um, and, you know, and then, you know, terpene, when you, when you do extend the terpene profile, when you look at, a, 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 at every terpene, when, you, when you're, you invest in that kind of science, right? So um, what you'll see generally is that you'll have a first group, which is produced at about five to 10 times more than the second group. That's, and then those are then produced at, a, at, a, at about that same level over a third group, right? And in that third group, you have really esoteric stuff like, you know, guayol, neurolidol, you know, that kind of stuff, right? So um, then in that second group, you have some of the more common things, right? Like the beta osamines and the beta pinenes and some of the, some of the other stuff, right? So, um, now, what's interesting, right, about those is that, um, you know, just like the cannabinoids, we're starting to see some losses there, some things that travel together there. Um, and if you, you know, when you look at the industry historically, not even maybe historically, but, you know, I, I, I found an article that was produced uh, by SC Labs after the last, you know, 
a high times cup or whatever it was they did, right? And they, they, they talked about a paucity of varieties and three terpene categories, right? So I think, again, there's an example, just like with the cannabinoids, where we have focused so much because of the sense of smell and bag appeal, right? So the two things we go after in the industry are, are how much THC and what does it smell like, right? So, um, so, so we're starting to see some losses there. Now, why is that important? It gets to the thing that you were segueing to is, is the physiological effects. Well, you know, a lot of these terpenes are in fact, the, the mid set is as important, if not more important than the big set, right? And by that, I mean, like, so things like, you know, um, um, linalool, right? It takes 10 times or maybe somewhere between 10 and 100 times less linalool to, to smell than it does beta mercine, right? So, so there are times where, you know, we have to not think about the plant from what's the most abundant terpene, but what is the combination of terpenes? Because you can have a less abundant terpene have a stronger effect than the most abundant terpene in the overall effect profile, right? So now let's get into the effect profile. So effect profiles are a thing, right? And some of it comes from the fact that we have to understand that the plant is not doing this for us, it's doing it for itself. And so the first rule is plants are not confused, right? So when they are making ACH inhibitors, right, which for us cause a higher cognitive function and let's say alpha pinenes and those kind of things, right? What those things are doing are actually a completely different thing where it's it's there to attract some some organism that's going to parasitize the thing that's eating it, right? So, um, you know, or it's going to, or if it's making, let's say linalool, right? Or neralidol or guaiol, it's there to paralyze that insect from contact inhibition, right? So, um, and those things tend to be um, alcohols that are sedative to us, right? So there you can see kind of, you know, a correspondence, right? It, it's a contact inhibitor, paralyzes, you know, makes it lethargic and paralyzes, it doesn't move. So it's easily farged by something else, right? And yeah, we get sedated. We like it's relaxing, right? you know? So, um, so if you see a predominantly elevated terpene, or, or sorry, the, the predominant terpene is an uplifting terpene, you will not see a bunch of sedative terpenes in that plant, right? It's because the plant by and large is not confused, right? Even though we've mishmashed a bunch of hybrids together, because it's still responsive to a biological program that's being triggered by the environment, it's still producing in a coordinate fashion the things that it needs to survive, right? So once we get to that point, we can now start to understand now how looking at the various complete terpenes gives you a different picture than, oh, this is beta mercine, right? And beta mercine is this much maligned thing because beta mercine by and large produces a mildly at best sedative effect, right? And, but yet it is the one because it's in indicas, right? That always gets hammered as being the sedative terpene, but it's not because if you pair beta mercine with alpha pinene, you get an uplifting, relaxing effect. If you pair beta mercine with limulul and or limonene or both, you get a very sedative effect, right? So, and we know these things because 
for generations, I mean, like 150 years, we've been studying terpenes and essential oils by GCMS. We have a very standardized way to fragment these things and to understand their fragmentation patterns. And, and then we have we can go and we can take a look at these things, identify them with 100% accuracy, and then say in mouse models or in aromatherapy trials that have been done on humans, what is the predominant effect? Right. And, and we, uh, and we can, we've even gone further where we've actually put, you know, either patch clamped mice or we've put, you know, um, EEG, uh, you know, on, you know, uh, receivers on people's heads and fed them alpha pinene and, and, and measured their brain waves and shown that, look, alpha pinene gives you a very focused alpha wave. Beta pinene raises the beta wave, right? So, and and so these things are known physiologically, both in both a, in animal mammal models, which you know is sometimes the best we can get, and in some cases they are directly on human studies, right? Through aromatherapy and, and observation, right? So, um, you know, so once you start to look at the terpenes as an integrated set, not just what's the highest or a single one you get a different picture of cannabis, right? And, and that picture of cannabis is in fact one that is highly medicinal and therapeutic if you pay attention to what's going on. Further, right, you get these synergies between the cannabinoids and, and, and the terpenes. And, and so that concert in our physiolo physiology causes us to respond in a certain way, right? Through our endocannabinoid system, right? But, but it's, there is actually a lot of logical you know, kind of correlations between what the chemistry is, what the plant's trying to do, and then what the effect in the human is, knowing that the plant didn't evolve these for us, but for its own survival. So let me try and summarize some of that. <laughs> um, basically, what you're saying is um, different types of plants with different genomes living in different environments are going to want to produce um, different cocktails of chemicals to protect themselves and to thrive in their environment. So for example, there might be one plant with one set of genes living in one environment, and it has to worry about certain types of insects coming around and eating it. And perhaps the best way to deal with those insects is to secrete a chemical cocktail that makes those insects lethargic and sleepy so that they get picked off by other critters and, and thereby the plant is protecting itself. But maybe there's another plant with another genome in another environment, and it really has to worry about other insects or maybe some other type of mold because it lives in a, in a warmer climate. And so it's going to tend to make a different cocktail of terpenes and other things. And it just so happens that when those two distinct cocktails of terpenes and other compounds get made by two different plants in two different environments that when a human goes and consumes one plant compared to the other, that's inevitably going to have some kind of different physiological effect because that cocktail is different between those two plants. Very well said. Boy, I wish I had said it that easily. <laughs> well, so we haven't said it explicitly, but you know, this gets to the idea that a lot of people talk about in, in the industry of the entourage effect. So can you just sort of restate, I mean, you're sort of restating what, what, what you were saying in some parts a moment ago, but what is the entourage effect and what is, is it, is, is the, are there clearly different entourages that we see in different types of cannabis cultivars? Um, so let's answer the sort of the, the second question. And, and the answer to that is absolutely yes. Right. We do, we do see different entourages in different cannabis cultivars for sure. Also, you can also sometimes 
change a single cultivar's, you know, entourage profile based on growing conditions. That gets back to what we were talking about before that, you know, uh, um, phenotype is the equal to genetic plus environment, right? So, so now, um, the entourage effect essentially is, in fact, the combination or, or, or the overall result, right, from the combination of that chemical cocktail, right? So, uh, and that chemical cocktail is not just the terpenes, but it's the terpenes and it's the, the cannabinoids, right? And, and these things are known to act synergistically. If you look at some of the, you know, the properties of both cannabinoids and terpenes, right? So many of them are antiviral, many of them are, are antifungal or antibacterial. Or um, you know, um, uh, yeah, anti-inflammatory, right? So THCA, a great topical anti-inflammatory. Well, you know, uh, some of the terpenes themselves are also anti-inflammatory, right? So, so when you have, oh, and further, right? The one of the most important things about I think the the entourage effect is the ability for the terpenes to help predispose the body for the actual cannabinoids to take effect, right? And, um, and, and I think that that's an important consideration, right? So you have things like beta-osamine and you have um, transmineralidol. So, so some of these things are outstanding skin penetrants, right? So, mm. um, and so that means they get across, you know, um, lipid membranes. So if, so if you have in the packet that you're carrying in the smoke or in the edible or whatever, or in the topical, these things that already help smooth the way through, right? You get a much better effect in that combination, hence the entourage. And you get also on top of that, the entourage can also sometimes cause synergistic reactions because the combination is greater than the sum of the parts, right? So because you have them interacting and they are, you know, many of them are doing the same thing. So, so instead of having one, right, you know, you have three that are acting through similar or overlapping pathways to cause anti-inflammation, right? So, um, and, and this gets to, you know, if you want to get really deep into the biochemistry, this is, pathway signaling, GPR protein triggering and all this other stuff, right? So, um, you know, but to, to not geek out totally on that, right? Um, you know, uh, so, you know, what, what we see, right, is that, you know, because of what we just define as these chemical cocktails, right? So now different cocktails are going to produce different effects, right? So is the cocktail predominantly one that's going to call lethargy or sedation? Or is it one that's going to cause, you know, uh, ACH inhibition, which is focusing, energetic, you know, you know, uplifting, right? But, you know, so, um, you know, so, so I, th I think, you know, and further, right? So if, if you take a look at chemical profiles, right, and you, you know, this, and, and this gets into, you know, chemical classification classification and, and schema, right? Like how do you go about trying to make sense of the broad diversity of terpene profiles that we see in the cannabis plant, right? So, so if you, if you start by what's the most abundant terpene, right? And, and to get some sort of hierarchy, and then you did, you know, you, you, and that's where you get the largely the, the six or seven groups based on those first most abundant ones, right? Um, and then you, you then, sub, you know, uh, you know, create a hierarchy in each group or each clade, right? Um, you end up with some very interesting um, separations, right? So you can have some that, you know, that might be 
in the energetic, but yet causing pain relief. Some might be sedative and cause pain relief. Some might be sedative and uh, anxiolytic, right? You know, but not pain relief, right? So, so, and and so, how do we get to that point from this discussion of terpenes and, and their and and entourage, right? Well, when you dig down deep enough, we know things like um, um, alpha pinene is an anxiolytic. It 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 it, it, hel- it is helps reduce anxiety, right? Um, we know uh, uh, things like limonene also. Right. Another one. Right. So but 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 they're operating from, you know, one's focusing. Right. One's um, relaxing. So they're going to they're approaching it from different parts of the body. Right. And so when you look at a real deep dive into a chemical profile, you can actually sit and you go back and you do the, the research that we had to do to to to, to say, OK, What's every known medical response caused by each of these terpenes is how we started that that path, right? Mm -hmm. So what is known medically about these things? And you put them together and you look at the profiles. Suddenly now it makes a lot of sense because you can see these minor things like, you know, transneurolidol, guaiol, which are tertiary tertiary, uh, um, substituted alcohols. Right. And in cannabis, these tertiary substituted alcohols all cause sedation. Right. So so there's a certain logic and there's a certain kind of pattern that falls out of it when you start to look at entourage seriously. So, So, yeah. So what you're saying is there are, in fact, distinct combinations of cannabinoids and terpenes that tend to show up in different types of cannabis cultivars. And if you categorize or you group those different cultivars based on their chemistry, you can see that, that these different combinations are present in each one. And when you start to think about you know, what we know, um, whether it's very much or, or just a little bit, about what the chemicals present in each one actually do, you can start to make some educated guesses at least yeah. as to what these different kinds of cultivars um, will actually uh, do when a person ingests them. So right. My, I guess my next question for you is, you know, when you take, you know, given that, that we're talking about cocktails of drugs here, whether or not you're talking about the psychoactive effects or the medicinal effects, at the end of the day, these things are going to be driven by the drug cocktail one is consuming. So someone like you looks at the phytochemistry and starts to uh, group the different types of plants based on their chemistry. You see that there are these distinct groups. How do these groupings that are based on chemistry relate to the groupings that one is actually going to encounter in a legal cannabis dispensary today. And so, you know, to, to help get to that question, you know, based on all the research you've done and all of the chemical categorization work that you're aware of, if you go into a dispensary today and you talk to a bud tender, the person in the dispensary that's going to be recommending a product to you, mm-hmm. they're going to say things like, well, we've got indicas over here. They'll make you relaxing. We've got sativas mm-hmm. over here. They'll make you energizing. Is there any clean relationship between what you'll be told in the commercial setting like that and what you're talking about based on your chemistry research? So um, well, that's a complicated question. Um, but so the answer to that is, is, as with all things cannabis, yes and no, right? So, and, and some of this goes back to the, the, earlier, we were talking about form and function. So in the old days, sativas carried 
one typical chemical cocktail because of where they evolved. Indicas typically had theirs because of where they evolved. Humans came together and screwed it all up, right? So now we have plants that are indica-looking, but sativa profiles or sativa-looking with indica profiles. However, when you look at some of the genes that are responsible for that, right, there was at least at one point, and, and, and there are certain terpene genes that seem to be indicators of sativa-like performance. And the reason why I say that is, is because when we did a lot of this um, uh, uh, bioinformatic analysis of, of, uh, of ISO-seq data, RNA-seq data, right, which is from trichomes and expression, right, uh, then we took that a step further and I had my team actually clone these things into bacteria, put them in a test tube, feed them precursor, measure what was made, and then put it on a chromatograph, right? So uh, on HPLC. And what we found was there are in fact some terpene genes that do make the compounds necessary to be a sativa, right? And by, and, and, and by that, when you looked at traditional terpene cocktails from sativas, you had things like alpha philandrine, three carrying. There was, there were some very specific terpenes that contributed to that energetic uplifting feel that sativas traditionally gave you. Well, lo and behold, there are some terpene genes that the, when you give them FPP and GPP, right? They come out with a combination of terpenes that it looks, in fact, a lot like what you would see in a sativa, the alpha so, phalandrines. So, okay, so yeah, what, can you just uh, clearly state what that combination is? Oh, um, hold on a second here. Uh, I, I got to pull up some data here. <laughs> um, uh, where is that? Um, I've been looking for a particular figure that I can read them off of. Because we have, I have a um, one of my one of my scientists is getting ready to give a, a talk about it. Um, give me one second. Come on. I know that I'm, I'm wasting a bunch of time here, but um, I, it's, I don't have the memorized and I, and I need to get it off of the actual figure. Um, let's see. I see. But, but you think that there, there is such, um, there are genes that correspond to a plant that will produce such compounds. Yes. So, in fact, and in fact, it, it's it's largely the presence or absence of one specific gene, right? Like so, and and one specific gene, um, you know, um, actually, uh, I mean, it was we were all like, I mean, I don't want to use bad language, but like the entire team after uh, this, you know, my my team member presented it, we were like all like, holy like like that's the sativa gene like that was literally our response it was every 
terpene that had been traditionally associated with a sativa effect came out of this one gene. And many varieties do not have this gene, right? And you find this particular gene in some very, you know, traditional sativa-like cultivars, right? So and what, uh, are the, what are those? Um, things, uh, most of the equatorial, you know, plants that are, are, are the taller, lankier ones still that you find the equatorials, um, uh, things like, um, super silver haze, um, is mm. one of the old school ones. Um, um, red Congolese, which is, uh, you know, or, or sorry, red Congo, which comes from Africa. Uh, a lot of the African, quote unquote land races are indicative of that sativa lineage. Yeah. So some of some of these, um, I think including Durban poison, I think including super silver haze, you know, in my research they have been um associated with a terpene called terpinaline. Is is that what you've seen? Uh so interesting terpinaline is so terpinaline you can find both in sativas and non-sativas, right? Uh terpinaline gene so many genes make terpinaline. However, one of them makes terpinaline in conjunction with these other terpenes, right? Mm. So in the gene that I'm speaking of specifically, um, and I'm not sure I should give it out just yet, um, uh, but it, it's going to be on our next publication. So, um, but this particular gene, it actually does in its profile, terpinaline is in fact, one of the things that comes out with the three carine and alpha philandrine and some of these other ones. So Interesting. Um, so do you, th so, so taking, uh, taking the consumer standpoint for a moment, if you're a cannabis consumer and you walk into a legal cannabis dispensary today, are the labels given to different cannabis products, are the labels Indica and Sativa going to actually tell you very much about the effects in that dispensary today? Generally, no. Generally, no. No, because um, largely those decisions are being made based on the, the, on the, you know, what it looks like, um, and, and color, right. Uh, there's nobody doing deep enough dives into the chemistry activity back. So uh, there are a couple labs, right. And I don't, I don't want to, you know, do any product placements for anybody, but there's a couple labs in California and, and around the United States that are doing extended terpene profiles and are doing them well. Right. So, um, but unless there's a COA and, 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 and unless everybody or every product from that dispensary shelf is coming from that lab, there's probably not enough information for the general populace to, being, to be, make that distinction. And, um, and, and, and it has to be an extended terpene profile. The top four or five terpenes, top six terpenes does not give you the information needed to be able to make a determination as to whether or not you have a, a sativa or not. I see. So what you're saying is that based on all the complexity that you mentioned um, to do with all of this stuff, all of the terpenes, all of the underlying genetics, how everything's been hybridized and, and mixed up over time, that the way things are named and labeled and organized in the legal cannabis shops today isn't actually going to be very informative to what you're going to get in terms of the effects. Yeah. And I, that I've been, yeah, I can't argue that that's hundred percent correct. That that's been my position for quite some time and, and it's made me rather unpopular sometimes. So, but yes, <laughs> it, it is the truth because, because what it means is the end to, 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 to brands. Right. And I hate to say that. Right. But like realistically, you know, Gorilla Glue or whatever you want to call it, a GG4, whatever. Right. So if you grow it four or five different ways, the 
you're going to get different chemo bars, right? You're going to get, you're going to see differences in that chemical profile, right? So, so, you know, again, right, you know, un unless you have a more extensive chemical profile, right, and, and you run that chemical profile through some sort of algorithm that says, based on what you have, this is what you would expect, and this is where it should be classified as an indicative or a hybrid, right? I, I don't think, I don't think you... You don't you don't have enough information coming out of most labs and into most dispensaries to make those calls. Why is it um, so? Given the lack of correspondence between the way things are labeled in the store and the way they're marketed, and the actual chemistry and the empirical reality of what we're talking about, why is it that you know when you walk into a dispensary, people are so confident when they say you know this indica over here will make you sleepy and this sativa will make you energizing? It is is it all just you know marketing? Uh, po marketing posturing or, or what? So some of it I think is favorites, right? So uh, bud tenders, you know, know what they know because they, they are in fact themselves, you know, consumers, right? So, and that's in fact, some of the problem, right? So a bud tender who loves to be couch locked and, 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 you know, his mind free, right. Um, you know, that may be a very annoying uh, you know, kind of uh, experience for somebody who's trying to clean their house, you know, and, and, and suddenly finds themselves unable to focus on anything because they got really high and, you know, on an indica, right? So quote unquote indica, right? So, so, you know, um, a lot of it is, you know, is, is the industry, well, THC, 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 right? And then after that, it is favorites and or brands, right? And I think that's largely what happens. I think you do have some uh, some bud tenders who are starting to understand and, and some older bud tenders who, who have been around a while understand the importance of, of the entourage or the terroir or, or whatever you want to call it. Right. So, um, and I think, you know, um, those people are, are, are the better bud tenders, right. Because they will talk to a person longer and say, Hey, you know, what it is, what is it that you're dealing with? You know, I mean, th they have taken that next step because they understand, hey, well, maybe you don't need this if you have anxiety. We need to get you away from that to something like this, right? So, um, um, but largely, uh, you know, and, and I stopped going to, to dispensaries a couple of years ago, right? Because I, you know, I I grow my, my backyard. I, it's legal in California, I grow my backyard, right? So, um, but, you know, when I was going to dispensaries, right, so, so you know, my observation, and even at some better dispensaries, right, some top-notch dispensaries, was that, you know, the education of the butt tenders was not always, you know, consumer, uh, you know, uh, um, to the job they were supposed to be doing, right, like, like you know, commensurate, right, sorry, right, so, so you know, here they were trying to um, be a a purveyor of information so people can make intelligent decisions and instead what they were like oh dude uh, this this one got me so high when i tried it right so it depends on what the consumer wants right but i i think part of what we are talking about here is also the endocannabinoid system right so and i, and I meant to you know make this this connection before is the bed the bud tender who is not talking to you about what you want and trying to show you terpene profiles to affect what you want and is trying to sell you based on THC percentage or what their experience was is largely misleading you because if you're not built just like them, you may have a crappy experience no matter how good experience they had. So do you think it's possible to, you know, is there a viable resolution to this problem where 
um, is it going to be somehow possible for us to bring the marketing claims that you see for cannabis products in alignment with the empirical reality of what is actually inside these things? Is there a way to do that in your view? Yes, I do. Uh, I, I think there is, um, but it requires, you know, um, science, right? So, so it does require that people kind of standardize testing. And then when we, we, we kind of share information, right. And, and, and that we are able to come up with an understanding of, of what, um, what constitutes a, um, a set of lab tests that can be used for deeper investigation into the potential of the plant. Right. And, and that's, that's kind of, uh, I was trying to formulate how I want to say that as I said it, but, but what we're trying to get to is an understanding of more terpenes, right? So six, eight terpenes, what we're, what most regulatory, you know, uh, bodies require is not helping us. Right. And, and the five cannabinoids is not helping us. Right. So, so we don't get any additional information that may in fact impact, right? Like, you know, if you're not measuring THCV and you have a plant that has a little bit of THCV, depending on how much THCV, that might change the spike, like how fast it hits you, how hard it hits you, but you don't know that because you haven't seen it right? in, in, in the COA, right? So, and, and the same thing goes with the terpenes, right? So in order for us to be able to understand how the terpenes are going to predispose the overall effect of that flower is, you know, you have to have a certain number of terpenes measured to a certain, to a certain precision, right? And, and, and in some cases, um, isoform distinguishing is going to be important for some of these things, because some of them have many isoforms and not all isoforms behave the same way, right? So alpha pinene and beta pinene behave differently. S-limonene, R-limonene behave differently, believe it or not. Um, S-linolol, R-linolol, right? One of them is a sedative and one of them is, is an energent, right? So is actually makes you kind of like racy, right? So, so we, we have to know the, the type and the form. And then from there, we have to build systems that allow us to say, okay, based on this chemical profile, this is where, this is the effect you'll get from this, regardless of the name, right? And, and cause blue dream on any, from any given grow could fall into two or three different subclasses underneath its major class, right? And so we need to get to the, to the point where we treat it like a medicine, we analyze it like a medicine, and then we and then we, we, we present it like a medicine. If you're looking for something that will, in fact, help you with anxiety or relieve pain, these are the choices you should look at, not these. So, you know, given um, what we were talking about earlier in terms of breeding uh, different cultivars and comparing cannabis to, to other things like corn, where you know, we've spent a lot more time and a lot more money so far on those breeding programs. How, how close are we to being able to breed or create gen- genetically modified cannabis cultivars that have arbitrary cannabinoid and terpene profiles? Is that something that's a couple of years away or is that you know, a decade away? Um, so... I, I, I believe, right? So there are already knockouts. I'm not sure that anybody has actually perfected the, um, you know, ad- adding not, you know, genes that are not present uh, yet. Um, 
uh, you know, some of it requires stable, you know, some of the techniques that we just got, like, you know, um, being able to stably transform cannabis, being able to regenerate from single cells of callus, some of those stuff, just technologies just came on board. Right. So, so, so some of that needs to be developed more. Uh, I know people have been working with, you know, CRISPR and, you know, to, and have, set the stage right so every i mean even my team has has created crispr guide rnas and stuff like that you know just uh for some of the uh, uh genomics that we genomics that we have built so that if we need to go to a next stage it's there ready right so um you know but the reality is is that you know we we are not far enough along in our understanding of the genetic diversity and or um the chemical diversity, right? So, you know, all of this data that we're talking about is based on very limited access, right? Like, we, it's not like we've gone everywhere and we've tested every, it would chemically flowered out every type of cannabis around the world and seen what we, we've got to work with, right? So, so there's still a lot of unknowns there that we have to tap into that allows regular you know, traditional breeding with good science base, right? So, and and development of genetic markers for marker-assisted breeding and that kind of stuff, right? So there's a whole bunch of stuff that we haven't done yet. Um, but I think to get to the, the, you know, it's probably only a few years off, like three, five years off before we probably could produce regular genetically modified organisms that have arbitrary terpene profiles. As of now, right, because of the marker studies that we've done, we can already do traditional breeding right, to get unique combinations. And my team has been, been working on that based on our studies, right? So we've actually started to breed, you know, plants that have unusual terpene profiles specifically because they have unusual terpene profiles that are not like everybody else's, right? So, um, so, but now, but because of the limitations of not, these not being genetically modified organisms, right? You know, it's back to the traditional breeding, right? So you did the cross. Now we have to pheno hunt and, and, and screen with the markers and pull out the ones that we want and more breeding. And, you know, it's, it's iterative process, right? So, um, but I, I think, you know, we are already at the point where we can breed for unique terpene profiles, right? Because of markers and traditional breeding and, and understanding which plants have what. Um, three to five years, you know, no more than 10 for sure. But I think probably three to five years, people will have genetically modified cannabis out there ready for sale. Whether, the, whether or not they'll get into the market is a different story, right? Because remember, there's a whole history of getting genetically modified organisms into the market of any kind, right? Produce or whatever in the United States, right? So, so just because they can do it doesn't mean, doesn't necessarily mean it'll be out of the market anytime soon. Are there any pro, like if you could snap your fingers and just make an arbitrary plant with an arbitrary cannabinoid <laughs> terpene profile, um, what would that look like? I, I guess what I'm asking is, are there any cannabinoid terpene co uh, combinations that you're particularly intrigued by because you think they might have interesting effects? Um, I'm agnostic to that. Like, uh, so I, so for me personally, right. I, I'm, I'm a heavy sativa uplifting kind of jump out of my skin guy. So all of my breeding reflects or my early breeding now that it's no longer just for me, it's for the company. I, I, I tend to look at things in a different way, but all of, all of the early varieties that we, we released in front range were from stuff that I was breeding for me. And I'm, I'm a heavy jump out of my skin, high edge. So I was breeding for things like that had high energy ter terpene profiles and, and, you know, THCV, if I could get it in, right? So, or that kind of stuff. So, um, 
I'm completely abnormal. Most people don't like to feel like they're dripping out of their skin. I, I, I find that my comfort zone, right? So, um, and so, you know, um, if I could snap my fingers together, I would have a beautiful, so in my experience, the varieties that I've created that have THCB don't behave well. <laughs> so they're problematic. They don't, they don't, they're they just they're weird they're weird plants right so high THC plants so if I could snap my fingers together it would be the magical plant that had beautiful flower structure behaved well and had um, you know very sativa like terpene profile um, that would be if I could that'd be mine right and, and 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 I'm pretty sure that would be pretty popular because something like that would be you know make you appetite suppressant it would be mind focusing it would be get shit done weed right so <laughs> all right well reggie godino um thank you for your time are there any final thoughts on the general topic of, of cannabis and commercial cannabis chemistry that you want to leave people with yeah um and it's something that, that I, I wish people paid more attention to so so science is your friend right like i know so so science costs money and i know it's been a, a bad word in a lot of the regulated industries right but science is your friend right so not just talking about you know contaminants and and and, and you know quality assurance for safety right we're talking about you know, knowing what you're putting in your body and being able to use the cannabis plant effectively. The, the better you know the plant and the better you know your ailments, the the more, the, the sooner personalized medicine through cannabis can become a reality for people, right? So there are so many compounds, right? And you and I talked about cannabinoids and terpenes today, right? So, but think about all the compounds we didn't talk about. Flavonoids, isoflavonoids, carotenoids, which we already know are part of the superfood family, right? You know, um, the, the, you know, antioxidants, the, all of these things exist in a fair bit in cannabis, right? So there are, you know, and one last thing, there's so much unknown production in trichomes. One thing I didn't talk about is when we do all these RNA studies is that we find, you know, a third of the of the production of, uh, of capacity of the trichomes is not even cannabinoids or terpenes. We find these other genes that are highly expressed at RNA. They're part of the berberine bridge family, but we don't know what they make, right? So it's a related compound. It might use a similar precursor, but there's a whole other set of chemistry in trichomes we don't even talk about, right? So chemistry is our friend. And the more we know, the more we know. So. All right, Reggie, thanks for your time. Thanks.